I'm standing on the platform of the Hoyt Schimmerhorn Station in downtown Brooklyn, serviced by the A, C, and G subway lines. And this is a unique subway station because it's very wide. It's got uh, six tracks with four island platforms. But only the middle platforms and tracks are in regular use. The outer platforms and tracks were initially built as a shuttle to the nearby Court Street station. The legend goes that Mayor William O'Dwyer had that entire station built for his personal convenience so he could ride the two blocks from the Court to Hoyt stations rather than walk. Anyway, the Court Street shuttle ceased operation in 1946, and the Court Street station later became the New York Transit Museum. It was also used for scenes set on subway stations and in subway cars, in films like Death Wish, The French Connection, and the original taking of Pelham 123. And because they're also out of regular use, the outer platforms and tracks here at Hoyt Street have been used in several films and television shows as well, including The Warriors, The Wiz, Crocodile Dundee, and the music video for Michael Jackson's Bad, directed by Martin Scorsese. From the time the subways were built, clear back at the beginning of the 20th century, they've been a constant presence in New York movies, an immediately identifiable and efficient storytelling device a quick way to insert an urban feel into Gotham-set cinema. But it's not just scenery. The best of the New York movies capture how the subway, unique in these United States, serves as a microcosm for the melting pot of New York City. And that utopian ideal has somehow survived after more than a century, often in spite of the city and state that run it. On today's episode, we'll look back at that history and the future of the subway and the subway on film, particularly two of the great subway movies, The Taking of Pelham 123 and The Warriors. And to help us out, we have folklorist, ethnomusicologist, and New York historian Nancy Gross. I'm a fourth-generation New Yorker. We have pop culture writer Hunter Harris. I like New York. We have filmmaker Walter Hill. That's probably more than you wanted to know. but We have public transit expert Danny Perlstein. So, you know, I'm betraying my age. And we have film critic for Vox, Alyssa Wilkinson. Do you need a lot more than that? I'm Jason Bailey. And this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it. Why don't you tell these gentlemen about some of the exciting things that have happened in the New York City subway system? If you get separated, make it to the platform at Union Square. How does it feel to be back in the war zone in New York City? I am the goddamn mayor of the goddamn city of New York. That son of a bitch has got me backed up all the way to the Bronx. New York. New York. Right. I bet you can't even find the subway. Fun City Cinema by Jason Bailey and Mike Hull. Next stop, Grand Central. Hey, you guys, the train's right over there. You're screwing up the whole New York City subway system. I'm warning you, mister, that city property you're fooling around with. Now look, if you still want to get to Union Square, I can show you where to grab the train. One of the most important links in the New York City transportation system is the Underground Railroad, the subways. They carry more than seven and a half million passengers a day over their 835 miles of track with speed and safety. This is a clip from a 1950 educational film about the wonderment of New York City. 
And the subway system was really a, a modern miracle. As Johnny Morris writes in his Essential History Subway, the system was, quote, a response to the needs of a city whose streets were clogged and whose slums were dangerously crowded. The city, in turn, was forever shaped by the subway, which neighborhoods got subway lines and which didn't, end quote. City planners spent much of the second half of the 19th century trying to plan a workable system of mass transit in the city. The horse-drawn streetcars and large stagecoaches of the time were woefully inefficient, but powerful figures in the New York political machine, known as Tammany Hall, were heavily invested in them. So change was a struggle. In 1875, the city started building elevated rail lines, or L's, through Manhattan, but they were not popular. They were loud and smelly and messy, and the trains and tracks cast long shadows across city streets. Finally, in 1894, the Chamber of Commerce was able to work, in conjunction with state politicians in Albany, to create the Board of Rapid Transit Railroad Commissioners. This new board was outside the reach of the Tammany machine, and it was created for the express purpose of building an underground train system in New York City. They spent four years fighting lawsuits and threats from property owners and from the L and street rail companies. And then it took two more years to work out the financial and engineering details and to take bids. But John B. McDonald, the lowest bidder at $35 million, won the contract to build the first New York City subway in January of 1900. And what he and the rest of the subway builders were taking on was, according to Johnny e. Morris, quote, a wholesale makeover of the city's underground infrastructure, and not just directly along the line. Beneath the streets in built-up neighborhoods, particularly south of 42nd Street, lay a thick tangle of water mains, sewers, gas lines, and electrical conduits, much of which had to be torn up, end quote. That initial four-and-a-half-year project was plagued by dust, explosions, street relocations, and general exhaustion. Steam-powered machinery was not yet in wide use, so <laughs> incredibly, most of the work was done by hand, with pickaxes and shovels, by a workforce made up primarily of immigrants and black Americans. Unskilled laborers were paid $2 per eight-hour day. Experienced miners made $3.75 a day for hard rock tunneling. 54 workers were killed in that first period of building. More than 300 were injured. Opening day for the New York City subway was October 27, 1904. The first stretch, which ran from Lower Manhattan to 145th Street on what we now know as the One Line, was operated by the Innerborough Rapid Transit Company, or IRT, a private company. Shortly thereafter, the L-train operator known as the Brooklyn Rapid Transit Company, or BRT, got into the subway business as well, with small sections of subway in Brooklyn. When the next batch of city contracts were dispatched in March of 1913, the BRT was awarded lines as well. And that was the rub. Initially, this was a commercial system, built by companies competing for customers, not to serve the people of the city. The city-owned Independent Subway System, or IND, joined the fray in the 1920s, but even its survival was contingent on the system breaking even. So its lines were built in well-populated areas, many of which were already served by the existing lines of their competitors. And thus the third, and it turned out final, expansion of the New York subway system again managed to concentrate resources and access in neighborhoods that already had plenty of both. And there were other economic concerns as well. You know, in spite of the rise of inflation and the increased costs of operation and upkeep, 
the subway's five-cent fare became a political third rail. Mayor after mayor refused to raise it to cover upkeep and expansion, even after the city took complete control of the subway in 1940 under Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. By the time Mayor William O'Dwyer raised the fare to 10 cents in 1948, it was too late. A never-ending budget battle was underway without sufficient revenues to cover repairs to existing lines, to say nothing of new ones. On the other hand, the reluctance of city officials to raise that fare was understandable, because, especially under total control of the city, affordability was not only politically expedient, but socially imperative. New York Subway is a great common denominator. This is Nancy Gross. She's a folklorist, ethnomusicologist, and New York historian with the Library of Congress. In New York, everybody rides a subway. The uh, options are not huge, unless you're incredibly wealthy and have your own private driver. Uh, it's by far the most efficient way to get around a series of islands with limited access to automobiles. Even if you could afford a car, you can't afford to park it. I know I can't afford to park a car. And uh, you know, subway goes very efficiently from point A to point B, even more so than any surface transport. For example, cabs are great, but cabs get caught up. You can get good and stuck in a subway, but it's not, not the same thing. And because the subway is so ubiquitous for New Yorkers, and the New York subway is so unique, it quickly became a storytelling tool for filmmakers shooting in New York or shooting elsewhere and faking like they were in New York. It, it is a very shorthand way to visually make a comment about a, a mixed society and, and an urban area. Because there's, except for the San Francisco cable car, there's no other visual that says place as quickly as the New York subways. I traveled a couple times before, like on school trips and stuff, and I felt like very overwhelmed by it. That's pop culture writer Hunter Harris, a native of Oklahoma, remembering riding the subway on one of her first trips to New York City. I remember like being in like Chelsea, being in Tribeca, being in like Soho and taking the train and feeling like, oh, this is like very adult and cosmopolitan. Because like that's the kind of like pretentious 15 year old, 16 year old I was. I was like, oh, this is so like what my idea of Sex and the City was like without ever actually having seen Sex and the City. Subways and movies sort of came of age together. The movies were only a few years old when the New York subways were being built. And they started showing up in films almost immediately. Remember, this is before the industry moved to California from New York in the 1910s. So many of the first movies were short films. They were called actualities, which had no characters or plots. They were just mini documentaries of city life. And audiences, especially those outside of the city, found them thrilling. An early surviving actuality is titled simply Interior New York Subway, 14th Street to 42nd Street. Its cameraman was G.W. Billy Bitzer, who would go on to shoot most of D.W. Griffith's best-known features. And its title is accurate. Bitzer just pointed his camera out of the front window of a subway car traveling along that first IRT line through the stations and tunnels from Union Square to the old Grand Central Station. It was shot and released in 1905, just seven months after the subway opened. That same year, Bitzer shot and released a 53-second slapstick short called 2 a.m. in the subway, involving drunken riders, a buzzkill cop, and a pushy subway employee. Other filmmakers would soon realize the comic possibilities of the subway. 
In both the 1924 Gloria Swanson vehicle Manhandled and the 1928 Harold Lloyd comedy Speedy, the pluckiness of the protagonists is established by their ability to acrobatically maneuver the subway during rush hour. Those scenes, however, were shot on subway sets, reconstructed on Hollywood sound stages, and New York audiences weren't fooled for a second. But that changed when New York location photography became more commonplace in the mid-century. Here's Martin Scorsese. And into, into the films made by United Artists through in the early 50s to the late 50s to the, like the Bachelor Party, for example, Delbert Mann made. Where are we now, Prince Street? I bet he picks her up before we hit Chambers. Uh, where they're on the subway in the beginning and he got, they stop off and you see in the background uh, the, uh, the subway stop is Prince Street. People were cheering. I'm going to sit down. Sure. Uh, oh, too much weight. Doesn't look like much to me. In 1966, Anthony Harvey directed a film adaptation of Amiri Baraka's unnerving one-act play Dutchman, set entirely on a subway car. Shirley Knight stars as a sexy young blonde woman who makes broad sexual overtures towards the only other passenger in the car, a young black man in a business suit, played by Al Freeman Jr. But as more riders enter the car at subsequent stops, her behavior grows increasingly erratic and dangerous for her target. <laughs> Come on, Clay. Come on. Get up and scream at these people. Don't sit there dying the way they want you to die, baby. Get up! Oh. Get up! Get up! God damn it, sit down! Screw yourself, Uncle Tom. The following year, director Larry Pierce would further explore the claustrophobia and inescapability of the subway car in his psychological thriller, The Incident. Martin Sheen and Tony Musante star as a pair of young delinquents terrorizing the inhabitants of a subway car on a long ride, taking turns verbally and physically assaulting a black couple, a Jewish couple, a young couple on a date, a young family, an elderly man, and a young soldier on leave. Push. I ain't gonna get out and push, man. Shut up! You see that? That's what you find when you're out at two o'clock in the morning. I wanted to take a cab. So after those films of the late 60s, which explored the dramatic tension of subway passengers feeling like hostages on the train, it's not surprising that in 1974, we got a film where they were just that. This is Pelham 123 to Command Center. This is Pelham 123 to Command Center. Do you hear me? Listen, train master. Your locomotive has been hijacked by a group of heavily armed men. We are holding 17 passengers and the conductor hostage in the first car. I am quite prepared to kill any or all of them if you do not obey my commands to the letter. Have I made myself quite clear? The taking of Pelham 123, directed by Joseph Sargent and shot by Owen Roisman, the cinematographer of The French Connection, Network, and Tootsie, among others, was based on the novel by John Goatee. It told the story of four criminals who take a single car of a New York subway train hostage, and the New York City transit cop, played by Walter Matthau, who foils their plot. 
and many people, myself included, consider it the best of all Subway movies. It has this like kind of claustrophobia, but it has this like humor and character. And it's, to me, it stands out in my mind as like a movie about like, a movie with and about character actors. And that's like what the Subway is. It's like, you have these like very disparate people, disparate groups, you never know like what it's gonna be. Like things are changing so quickly. Um, and that's really why it stands out in my mind. It, it feels like watching this movie feels like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm on the subway. Like, I don't know what's gonna happen next or who's gonna get on or who's gonna get off. And there's something about that quality that just feels like very unique to that movie. Alyssa Wilkinson agrees. She's the film critic for Vox. If you ride the subway every day, you start to feel like, this will happen to me sometime, right? Like, this is a very good possibility. But I also think, like, all the stuff in the background, um, like, in the control center, um, all of the, like, maps on... I have no idea if there are maps like that anymore on the walls, but I would believe it if I went to the MTA headquarters and that's what was there. The dispatcher's room that art director Gene Rudolph built at Filmway Studio in Harlem was not an exact replica of the transit authorities, but it was similar in layout. And the cast used all practical equipment, including telephones, intercoms, and a console with 100 switches and lights. I think the other thing that really does this is even though the subway systems have, you know, kind of combined and been standardized and all this kind of stuff, like all these stops are still very familiar. I, you know, I, I have been on that train. <laughs> You know, and everyone kind of knows what's at the end of their lines because you have to look for it to know which direction you're going in. Um, and the stops really haven't hugely changed over the years. The city was initially reluctant to get involved with the shoot. People there were worried that it might inspire real-life copycat criminals. But the transit authority was seemingly persuaded by the quarter of a million dollars that the filmmakers were willing to hand over for the use of the aforementioned Court Street Station. Uh, for the track leading up to it, and for several subway cars. The city was also thanked profusely in the end credits, immediately before a title card stressing, and this is a quote, although many of the scenes in the film were taken on transit property, the New York City Transit Authority is not responsible for the plot, story, and characters portrayed. The authority did not render technical advice and assistance. Frank, my only priority is saving the lives of these passengers. Screw the goddamn passengers. What the hell do they expect for that lousy 35 cents to live forever? The Transit Authority's only condition was that the subway cars that appeared in the film were scrubbed of graffiti, which was a detail that did not go unnoticed by New York critics at the time. But it was one of the few details that didn't ring with authenticity. I don't think a lot of movies about the subway or with the subway get into that, like, seeing kind of behind the curtain because I think when you live in New York, it's very much like, okay, what time is train going to be here? What train are you transfer? Like, what station am I transferring at? But the fact that you kind of get this behind the scenes of like, this is actually how this like massive organization runs and how inefficient it is, is like kind of really fascinating. And I think that's like a really fascinating quality to that movie. Peter Stone's screenplay is actually kind of brilliant about this. You know, in a novel, all of the details of how the trains run can be unloaded in a, you know, a few paragraphs of prose. But in a film, you have to convey that information in dialogue. Pelham 123 splits it up into two clever expositional devices. Early on, while the criminals are boarding the train at different stops, we overhear a conductor in training. Okay, kid, out loud now so as I can hear what you're saying. I'm checking the passages, getting on and off. Uh-huh. Front and back. Yeah. Shutting the doors. Rear section first, then the front section. 
and the doors are closed. Now I'm checking my indicator lights to make sure all the doors are locked. I remove my switch key, go back out the window for a distance of three car lengths to make sure no one's being dragged. And so we understand how each train works on the tracks. If I was you, I'd start studying for that motorman exam right now. Tell the truth, Mr. Matson, I have been. Wanna hear something? Every car in the IRT is 72 feet long. Cost $150,000, weighs 75,000 pounds. And later, uh, Matthau's transit cop is tasked with giving a tour to the visiting directors of the Tokyo subway. So he spouts off more fun facts, including the source of the film's title. These are the assignment desks, uh, one for each of the lines. This is the BMT, the IRT, here's the IND. Gentlemen, this is the TA Command Center. Come on in, a lot of laughs in here, terrific place. You see, each train is identified by the name of its terminus and the time of its departure. Thus, an express train leaving Woodlawn at 6.30 p.m. would be Woodlawn 630. While on its return trip, its destination might be, uh, let's say, like Flatbush 825. I hope you're memorizing all this junk. I'm going to ask questions later. And in terms of bureaucracy, well, <laughs> we mustn't forget the mayor. What is it? Another strike? All right, all right. I can take another strike. This is, for my money, one of the funniest things about the taking of Pelham 123. When the novel was written, John Lindsay was mayor. And you can see traces of him in the character who's, you know, ineffectual and terrified of strikes and politically calculating. But by the time the film was made and released, the mayor was Abraham Beam. And whom Lee Wallace, who plays the role, was much closer to physically. But then... The mayor character's entire demeanor is reminiscent of Ed Koch, who was elected mayor three years after Pelham was released. Warren, God damn it, this city hasn't got a million dollars. Then you better empty out one of your Swiss bank accounts because there's no other way out. But don't we get even to think about it? There's no time. All right, I still want the full picture. Get me the police commissioner, the chairman of the transit authority, and that putz we got for a controller. They're on their way over now, but it's no good running to them, Al. You're the mayor. The buck stops with you. Oh, shit. God help us. I don't know. I guess the lesson here is the perception of New York's mayor as a bumbling putz. Well, that's timeless. I think I handled it all right. Huh? A regular Fiorella LaGuardia. But the thing that Pelham 123 really gets right about the New York subway is the assortment of people you'll find and find yourself a part of on just about any train. Because the film takes the care to cast like, every imaginable New York type in that group of hostages. You know, you got a mother with her kids, a college student, a sex worker, a drunk, a hippie, an old man, and on and on and on. And it sounds like a casting formula. But sometimes when I'm on the train, I'll look around and <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a casting agent was involved somewhere along the line. Honestly, the grouping of people on the subway feels very authentic to me. And I, I think that might be a reason. Like, any of those people in those exact clothes could walk onto the subway and nobody would even blink today, um, which I think is part of the joy of being a New Yorker. Like, the stuff you see, you just, nothing phases you after a while. You know, I was I was laughing about the, the like, undercover cop who's, like, kind of a hippie, and I was like, no, all of this makes sense to me. Um, it does feel sort of real and surprising and interesting. Like, that is just, like, how riding the subway is. And frankly, that's what's great about the train in general. 
You know, it's a microcosm for the city. And at, at any given moment, you can see the melting pot that we strive to be happening in every single car. I've never been on a train, like a subway train where it's like, oh, I'm on a train with like all like businessmen or like all teens who are like skateboarding and like making me like feel very uncool about myself. Like it's, it's always just like this collection of people that is so random and so weird. And you can even sense it, I think in the moments when there's someone on a train who's like arguing, someone on the train who's like rapping, like listening to music really loud. And it's like, like we're all like, in this moment together, like annoyed with this person who's like truly talking so loud on the phone. The Taking of Pelham 123 was a big hit when it was released in 1974. It's a television and home video perennial. It was remade twice, once for TV in 1998, and again by Tony Scott with Denzel Washington and John Travolta in 2009. It plays all the time in New York, and I always go see it again. And the what do they want for their lousy 35 cents line gets a huge laugh every time. Oh, and uh, shortly after the film's release, superstitious transit authority dispatchers instituted an unofficial but understood scheduling policy. No subway train would ever again depart from Pelham Bay Park at 1.23 a.m. or p.m. If the taking of Pelham 123 was created with an eye on authenticity, to look like something that could feasibly happen on a recognizable New York subway, the Warriors took the opposite route. Stylization over realism. Theatricality over verisimilitude. And that choice was primarily due to the man who made it. I had visited New York a few times, but I was, a, you're quite right, I was a very California guy. Very American in my taste, but not a New Yorker. That's Warriors co-writer and director Walter Hill. So I had certainly seen a lot of films that had taken place in New York, but I can't think of anyone that was dispositive in terms of what it would be like. Hill was one of the hottest screenwriters of the early 1970s. He penned scripts for Sam Peckinpah and John Huston, among others. He moved to directing in 1975 with Hard Times, one of those great post-Death Wish Charles Bronson movies we told you about in an earlier episode. He followed that up by writing and directing The Driver in 1978, and was looking for a new project when his producer, Lawrence Gordon, brought him a 1965 novel by Saul Urich about New York gangs. And he had me read it. Uh, and I had said, well, look, this is a perfect book for me, uh, <laughs> but nobody is ever going to let us make it. He had talked Paramount into some interest in this kind of film. And Paramount had had a big success with Saturday Night Fever, which, I mean, really doesn't compute in the sense of it's a very different kind of movie. But it was young people in uh, Brooklyn. <laughs> so suddenly, I don't know, it, it came together. And uh, I had to swear, of course, that I would make it for a peanut butter sandwich and all that. And um, so we went and made a very small, low-budget movie. The focus of the Warriors is the title gang. Their turf is Coney Island. But as the story begins, they're heading into unfamiliar territory for a big meeting of every gang in New York City, way out in the Bronx. We ain't even been to the Bronx before. No sweat. This conclave is going to be a real big item. Every gang in the city is going to be there. Every gang is instructed to come unarmed, 
to hear a message of unity from Cyrus, a charismatic, almost Christ-like figure. And he gets through to them until... The rival gang that pulled the trigger convincingly blames the warriors, who find themselves far from home, unarmed, and in the sights of every other hood and cop in the city. Okay, what are we going to do now? We're going back. You mind telling us how? Fucking Coney Island must be 50 to 100 miles from here. It's the only choice we got. Yeah, real simple. Except that every cop in this city is looking to bust our heads. We got something else to think about. Yeah, what? The truce. Is it still on? If it ain't, we're gonna have to bop our way back. And their only way back is on the train. So the subway becomes the motor that fuels the story, that gives the Warriors its momentum, just like it does for the city. The Warriors takes place almost entirely in one night. So it was shot over 60 nights in the summer of 1978. When we were out there making the Warriors, I, it was a wild experience every night. You never quite knew what was going to happen. The Transit Authority again fully cooperated, lending trains and personnel and stations, including Hoyt Street for interiors and exteriors at the distinctive 72nd Street IRT station. But the experience of making the Warriors was much more chaotic than Pelham. First of all, five years had passed, and they had not been good years for the city. It was a very special time in New York. There were a lot of problems within the city. A lot of people thought the city was finished. I have to tell you, I did not think that, but uh, it was going through a bad phase. And Pelham had mostly been shot in isolated, easily controlled spaces, you know, closed off stations and constructed sets. Hill was shooting out in the street. We had our share of problems, like any film does. There were some gangs that kind of extorted you know, they said, look, you're on, yeah, you're on our turf. So it was always the same thing. We'll keep your truck safe. We'd, uh, we'd like a certain amount of money for that. And the usual story, extortion usually works, at least in the short run. These kind of complications kind of came with the territory when you were making a movie about street gangs. And our, our gang guys, some of those kids were pretty tough guys. Often the real gangs of the neighborhoods knew we were coming. So they, uh, they would object and then uh, say, get out of here. And we, of course, would say no. But they would throw rocks or a couple of times up on the uh, elevated tracks, things like that. They'd stand up there and piss down on our guys when they were going by, you know, my our warriors. And then the, I remember one time that happened, the warriors... Uh, my warriors all, all ran up trying to find the guys to beat the shit out of them or get the shit to beat out of them or something. I said, you know, number one, you can't do that. You guys have a bigger responsibility and uh, everybody's going to be out of work. You get a broken nose or something. And, uh, and the other thing is you, you can't always be real sure. There's two things. You can't always be real, real sure you're going to win the fight. And, and two, you, you can't always be real sure the other guy doesn't have a gun. And these kinds of complications also came with the territory when you release a movie about street gangs. 
controversy haunted the Warriors when it hit theaters in February of 1979. The film was blamed for several incidents of violence in and around movie theaters showing it, including three separate deaths in Boston, Palm Springs, and Oxnard, California. Members of the press claimed the film had worked its viewers up into a violent fury. But not everyone said that, Hill notes. Mayor Koch and the people of New York really never attacked the movie. As a matter of fact, said nice things about the film on the whole. I think it would have been a cheap shot, but it would have been an easy shot. And they, they never did that. And I'm, I'm forever in their debt that way. Walter Hill found the idea of the Warriors glamorizing gang violence to be pretty hard to swallow. You know, when you look at the movie now, it looks harsh realism is not the first thing that occurs to you about it. It, it looks very stylized and looks more like a musical anymore than it, than it does uh, a hard, tough thing of the streets. And maybe with its haunted ghost town aura and deserted streets and subway cars, the Warriors wasn't realistic. But sometimes, when you're on the right train, at the right time. In the morning, you like have commuters and you have like families, kids, whatever. And then at night, it feels like anyone's game. It does feel like, especially like if you're at like a certain time that like when you're coming home, it feels like very lonesome, but also very like just dramatic and kind of like, I don't know, not sexy, but like. Um, just like after hours, right? Like that's that's like the, it feels like very like gonzo in a way. Like there are no rules on the subway after like a certain time, it feels like. Yes, so late nights for sure. I mean, fewer of them these days than I used to in my 20s, but definitely if you're on, if you're on the subway in, um, I can't even, it used to be if you were on the subway in Bushwick at 3 a.m., nobody would be there. What I like about the subway in The Warriors is that it does, it does have like that science fiction feel. Like I'm going from like, world to world as much as I'm going from stop to stop and how quickly the city changes and how like that feel even though it's like obviously super stylized like that feels truer to me than a lot of other movies that feature the subway in which like the city can change so quickly even going like 10 blocks and going from like one stop like three stops later it's like you're in a completely different part of the city you're in a, like around completely different people and it does feel like you're being transported some like transported like onto a different planet almost um if you're at the right place at the right time i was thinking about the pandemic era subway riding actually while i was watching this because i rode the subway the whole year i had to go to work and it was real empty <laughs> and it was it was kind of nice i mean it was nice to sort of sit and not worry about like am i going to get a seat am i going to be too near anyone um, they're still not running at full capacity now, but that is really what I thought of. And it did have that eerie sort of like I am legend, empty city feel to it. A lot of which has ended now, but watching it, I thought, oh, yeah, uh, you know, that apocalyptic feeling that people kept talking about is exactly what this movie is. I didn't do any research and um, because it's dystopian and you know, kind of in a nameless dystopian future. You know, it's it's much more like a movie that came out, I think a couple of years later, John Carpenter's movie, Escape from New York. It feels very New York, it is very New York, but at the same time, it's, it's not a realistic film at all, and uh, nor does it pretend to be. So I just kind of tried to catch the vibe of New York then, 
and projected a few years ahead. And that few years ahead, I think, is the key. Because by the mid-1980s, the New York subway, which was already in pretty rough shape, had fallen into such a state of decay that it had become, for many riders, legitimately dangerous. And that state of disarray was reflective of the city in that era. It was sketchy, but New York has gone through that historically. I think all urban areas do. But it had never been um, fueled as much by both state and national lack of funding and lack of respect for the people who are New Yorkers. And that's when you have those really scary movies. And on that, I, I want to bring in my co-host, Mike Hole here uh, to sort of help me out with a little bit of the history here. Because, Mike, I, as I was telling you, you know, as, as recently as, as writing the book and even to some extent researching this episode, I'd always thought of the subway merely as transit. I had thought of it as mass transportation, a way to get a bunch of people from one place to another. And that certainly is what it is. And that's certainly a function it fills and how most people think of it. But that was not... When these when they started building these lines, that wasn't the only reason they were doing it, right? Yeah, I, th there's this long time kind of w lens that you can look at New York through, which is this question of who gets serviced by the city, right? Like you know, the Lower East Side is always described as a slum, right? Like how many times have you heard that word, <laughs> read that word? Right? Oh yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, the the tenements, the you know, the the tenement slums of the Lower East Side, the immigrant neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The idea of putting them underground was, you know, was a, a, a part of the design element, but that's a huge pain in the ass to dig a tunnel. <laughs> it's much harder than it is to put up a, a, a railing, you know, to put up a framing that, that can hold up a train. But putting them underground was a big part of the, of the quality of life for, you know, not just the, the nicer neighborhoods uptown, but also, you know, the train, a lot of the trains started in the Lower East Side or were planned from the very beginning to run through the Lower East Side. And there was a big part of that conversation that they needed to be buried. That way they weren't kicking soot all over the place and they weren't loud. And that was a quality of life question for the people in those neighborhoods. So it wasn't just about where they could go, but it was also about their experience of the train in their actual place. And yes, this was not subtext. This was text. The subways are considered a way to provide people a way to get out of those places and to mm -hmm. go to the places where there are not just jobs. I mean, obviously, jobs is a major part of it, but also other city services. I mean, where's the library at? Right. It's not in the Lower right. East Side. Obviously, we have branches there now. But at that time, you know, access to those kinds of things was really hard to get for especially poor people. So there was this sure. really early... Uh, push to also make it affordable, you know, and this yeah. conversation about this being a way for people to access more than just work, but clean air and education and entertainment and, you know, uh, green spaces. They didn't, of course, call them that in 1905, but green spaces sure. for your kids and, and, and a way to grow the city, but also to, to grow the kind of lives of the people who couldn't necessarily, you know, move uptown, right? But don't forget, like, Emma Goldman was alive when all this was going on. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, there were some some vocal people, you know, who were, were really did not give a shit about big money, but but saw the the value of this system as a way to improve the lives for a bunch of people who, you know, were never really never had a seat at the table. 
I just intellectually and emotionally, I just find it fascinating that at some point after, <clears throat> again, the, the sort of the city took over and the idea being that now they, the idea was to look out for the public good. At some point, we that sort of fell away. That idea that, you know, the, the sort of those, those high ideals upon which the subway began, that it should serve these purposes we stopped thinking about it in that way not long after that happened. And I'm just fascinated by that, the idea that the thinking on it changed so much. So this is something we've talked about before, you know, is this idea that if you starve certain neighborhoods of resources and then people leave those neighborhoods because they're not tenable or unpleasant to live in anymore, that overall that is a, a positive thing for the planners, Right. It, it gives them more opportunities to to go right. in and gentrify those areas and, and kind of change them up. And they never seem to think about it from the perspective of people who live there. Like this is their home, you know. And so when you starve yeah. a place of, res you know, from resources and then the people leave that place, that's a heartbreaking thing for those people. Right. It's not like they went away to college. You know, they went away to yeah. a place where there are grocery stores. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, that's not an overall win. Yeah. And you know, that's something that really we've talked about, we've referenced in terms of New York in the 70s. But I feel like that philosophy really started getting, you know, cemented into place by Moses uh, much earlier, you know, in the 40s and, and, and 50s. Yeah. And it was his idea was just, you know, build highways everywhere and, you know, just kind of move everybody to White Plains. And, and, and as a result yeah. of that, he pulled funding in a lot of ways from the neighborhoods where people needed it, you know, from where it could have been focused and from public transportation. And he put that stuff into highways. It really feels to me like it, like the subway started to be really intentionally starved at that point. And public transportation became, you know, really intentionally starved at that point. And it's, it's, it's literally been insufficient ever since. Well, that's what's intriguing to me was that you use this phrase earlier, which, again, in terms I'd never really thought of it, the idea of quality of life, the idea that building the subway was going to increase uh, uh, the, the quality of life, because that's the same turn of phrase <laughs> that, number one, came to sort of um, uh, came to sort of define everything that the subway wasn't by the 70s and 80s, <laughs> but that then also by the 90s was the phrase that, you know, Giuliani and and the NYPD are using to crack down on the subway. Like that 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 that's the sort of the complete arc of that terminology was that by the end of the century, quality of life was a phrase that we were using to um to uh, target and uh, harass and arrest poor people. I think another thing about it is that the New York City subway system is just so big and so such a vital part of existing in the city. You know, it really is in whatever state it's in, you know, however long you might be waiting for a G train in Brooklyn, it's still going to get you there faster than what are you going to you going to walk across the bridge, you're going to swim. Like, what's your plan? You're going to sit in that tunnel traffic. You know what I mean? So in a lot of ways, it is still and always has been the best way to get around. And mm -hmm. it's so enormous and so kind of old and, and you know, there's just so much to it that you can really kind of use it for anything you want, 
You right. know, you can kind of right. turn a subway story in right. any direction that you want to turn it in. Let me read you something real quick that I think actually does a pretty interesting job of encapsulating that. It says, the subway is frightful looking. It has paint and signatures all over its aged face. It has been vandalized from end to end. It smells so hideous you want to put a clothespin on your nose, and it is so noisy the sound actually hurts. The subway is full of surprises. It has what are probably the longest rides of any subway in the world, the biggest stations, the most track, the most police officers. It is a gift to any connoisseur of dubious superlatives. It has the filthiest trains, the most bizarre graffiti, the noisiest wheels, the craziest passengers, the most macabre crimes. So wrote Paul Thoreau, the novelist and author of The Mosquito Coast, in a story for the New York Times Magazine in January of 1982. And for that story, he had spent a week of the previous December basically just riding the train, doing nothing else. And he paints a vivid picture of the subway's sorry state. In films like Pelham 123 and The Warriors, the sketchiness of the subway provides color. You know, it's part of the vivid tapestry of New York in the 1970s. An inconvenience, yes. Maybe a little scary, but surmountable. In the 1980s, it was increasingly impossible to romanticize the subway. In 1966, there were 78 robberies and one murder on the subways. In 1986, there were 8,300 robberies and 20 murders. Hundreds of thousands of windows were knocked out every year. And then there was the graffiti. Here's Nancy Gross again. There was a period in the late 70s, early 80s when graffiti started. And initially it was magnificent. So they were doing entire sides of trains. When people say New York graffiti, that's what they were referring to. And as a folklorist, I found that fascinating. And some of my friends uh, were out photographing it and documenting it. Where it became less friendly is when um, the, what they call the toy writers took over and people just putting their names sloppily all over the inside of cars and blacking out windows. And it became just chaos. Equally chaotic was the infrastructure. There were derailments, car doors that wouldn't open, burnt out lights that weren't replaced, tunnels falling apart, motors falling off axles, subway cars catching fire. How did it get so bad? The consolidation of the three individual subway lines in 1940 was supposed to make the entire system more efficient and make further growth possible. I mean, hell, that year, the 2nd Avenue elevated line was demolished with work on its underground replacement barely begun. So certain was its quick replacement. Instead, that line's first phase, consisting of only three stations, opened in 2017. Well, simply put, what happened was the war. Maintenance was already an issue when World War II began in 1941, but for the next several years, steel was being used on tanks and ships. And then there was a big shift in those post-war years. I think after World War II, the priority was to suburbia. You had people like Robert Moses coming in and tearing up mass transit and shared urban spaces, and urban spaces were privatized. For nearly half a century, this man has pushed people around New York. Almost anybody who is anybody has cursed him, fought him, knuckled under to him, and admired him. The list of his adversaries include Franklin Roosevelt, Fanny Hearst, Elmer Davis, who once compared him to Hitler, Walter O'Malley, and hundreds of thousands of landowners who thought their property was sacred. Robert Moses was, for decades, 
the most powerful man in New York City government. He never held elected office, mind you, but at one time or another, and often simultaneously, he was city parks commissioner, chairman of the Triborough Bridge and Tunnel Authority, and head of the city planning commission. And as such, he controlled hundreds of millions of dollars in spending. Suddenly, because suburbia and upper-class Americans insisted on private vehicles, cities were reimagined and, and most urban funding went toward making life easier for car owners. And I, so I think that was a rearrangement of, of the entire world. As a city planner, Moses believed it was his job to make life easier for the wealthiest of those who worked, though not necessarily lived, in the city. So he championed cars over public transportation and steered investment to highways, bridges, and tunnels over decaying subways, buses, and commuter trains. As Robert Caro wrote in his indispensable Moses biography, The Power Broker, quote, the coordinator's grabbing of the lion's share of public funds for highways and garages meant that public resources would be poured with a lavish hand into improving the transportation system used by people who could afford cars. Only a dribble of public resources would go into the transportation used by people who could not, and who therefore rode subways and buses. While the city and state were providing car users with the most modern highways, they would be condemning subway users to continue to travel on an antiquated system, utterly inadequate to the city's needs. While highways were being extended into suburban areas of the city, in which highways were needed, and in fact, into areas of the city in which highways were not needed, in which the need for highways would be created by the highways, subways would not be extended into areas of the city in which subways were needed." End quote. And because it was now so easy to commute into the city from outside of it, tax revenues for the city fell. The tax revenues that not only were needed to upkeep neglected public transportation, but to maintain social services and support systems for those who were not lucky enough to live in the suburbs. By the um, 60s and 70s, the idea that urban space was evil and bad and scary was sort of, it sort of played on itself. Of course, the more people who move out, the less people are there to take care of the city. That was also fueled by both the rise in crime, but also in riots and um, changes in ethnicity. You know, and who came? People who came were by and large really hardworking people. And I have always felt, I've always felt very lucky to be a New Yorker because we get the world's best and you have to be really good to survive here. But that's not how it was portrayed in America. It was portrayed in increasingly in par paranoid ways um, by the American media who were busy selling suburban homes. In what reality do you like stop investing in the subway? That's Hunter Harris again. When it is like actually the only thing that like so many people have access to, to get them anywhere, to do any, like to make New York City like livable. But as Alyssa Wilkinson notes, most New Yorkers did not, and still don't, have a choice. It's still the cheapest way to go, unfortunately, no matter, unless you're walking or able to ride your bike, it's the cheapest way to go. Um, but yeah, it's gotten less reliable, even if we have signs that tell us how unreliable it's going to be. It, you know, it's gotten less reliable over time. But hey, we have Wi-Fi now. So that's great. <laughs> and it's still, like it or not, the most efficient way to travel. There's no amount of money or whatever that can like get you like across the 
um, Williamsburg Bridge faster. Like that's like, there's like no way to make this process like slower, faster, anything. Like it's going to happen at the rate it's going to happen. Like um, if the train is stalled, the train is like simply stalled. So I think there's a growing awareness of, of the idea of shared public space. And I think the New York subways have gotten over their worst period. So although some people insist that I will never ride this, this subway, it's really, even at the height of the pandemic, was very safe. They're doing a great job. There are spikes in crime, but given what had what the crime rate had been, it's really very, very safe. When you look at, at, its, um, at its height, it's carrying five and a half, six million people a day. And is there some crime? Yes, but there's, there's not a huge amount of crime. Um, given the films that have come out recently, I think you run into better chances of running into ghosts and demons than you do of mothers. The contemporary New York subway has a long way to go, but it's certainly safer and more efficient than at its 80s nadir. Yet it's worth noting that the subway, as we use it in 2021, is still basically comprised of tunnels and track that were dug and laid in a 40-year period that ended 80 years ago. The fares keep rising, but the underground transit system does not change, and in many ways, does not improve. We are all, again, bound to this like major inconvenience of the subway, which is great and effective and also like woefully mismanaged and full of like bureaucracy and drama. I mean, it is just like a microcosm of New York. Like it feels like very stereotypical and like obvious to say, but it's like all of the problems about living in New York, all of like the um, inequality and all of the, I mean, racism, all of the like just strat like social stratification is the most visible in the subway system and where it goes and who it serves. For me to get to Queens from where I live, which is four miles away, <laughs> I have to ride the subway for an hour and a half. <laughs> this is, it's very, I have to go through three boroughs. Like, it's very silly. There are whole big spots where the rent is cheap, but it's hard to get out of it. And so I'm not, you know, I'm thinking of people who might be prone to live in those areas who are working lower wage jobs or something who also have a harder time getting to work because of it. Um, and I think that has a big effect on the way people visualize what counts as the city um, and what counts, who counts as part of the city. And it really does shape the reality of the city we live in and what we think exists, which matters for how we think we should allocate resources and pl plow roads or whatever when it snows um, or save when there's a hurricane. All of those things are, are, I think, directly mapped onto the subway. Well, I think, you know, if you look at the period of transit construction in the country. Our subway is roughly contemporaneous with the, the T in Boston, with the Chicago L. This is uh, Danny Perlstein. He's the policy and communications director for the Riders Alliance, uh, New York's grassroots subway and bus rider organization. And then, you know, you have the great society subways like the Washington Metro, the BART, um, you know, MARTA in Atlanta. And then, you know, even more recently, things like Sound Transit and Metro in L.A., uh, but we were built largely by the private sector with substantial public, you know, investment and, and backing and then gradually became municipalized. 
right? So the subway is now operated by the state just because it wasn't able to remain a going concern privately. Too much subsidy was needed, too many upgrades after the initial period of construction to maintain the subway we have today, which people consider a trillion dollar asset. It feels like, you know, when you get into the the 50s and 60s, especially the city spent so much money and so much time on roads and expressways and parkways and highways for this comparatively small percentage of the population that had cars and really left everyone else high and dry. I mean, is that a fair assessment of how that happened and why? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I think there were there were liberal assumptions that went awry beginning in the 30s that the city should be, you know, depopulated to some degree, that people should be moved out into the suburbs and the people that we're talking about were white people. Um, and so then in the 50s and 60s, when government spending ramped up after World War II as a way to continue to goose the economy with public spending after military spending, you know, decreased to a degree, um, there was the really, you know, large scale bulldozing of cities And New York actually, in some ways got away, you know, relatively unscathed, you know, outside of a few devastated neighborhoods compared to other smaller cities that were entirely, you know, eviscerated by highways. Uh, but you're right, it soaked up an enormous amount of public resources. And so it was fair to say that although the federal government wasn't investing in transit in New York in the 60s when it was in other places, it had been investing in highway construction and there was money coming in, you know, to Robert Moses to build the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, you know, the Long Island Expressway, you know, the Guanas Expressway, the, the, the real roads that, that cut up the city, that cut off neighborhoods and that were complemented by disinvestment in the public transit system, or at the very least, you know, benign neglect. Does that just speak to who had voices in that period who were listened to as to whose who's, who's opinions mattered in terms of public policy in that era? I think it does. I also think of like, you know, who who was organized and who was being organized. You know, there was the, the real growth of a tenant movement in that era. You know, there was a public sector labor movement in that era that has produced, you know, a very robust public sector unionization in New York, there was no transit voice, right? Because, you know, the city was seeing a persistent drop in transit ridership since the end of the war, really through the turn of the century. Um, and, you know, I think it, or it started to rebound, you know, maybe in the 90s, but, but you know, only, only in 2015 did we start to approach the ridership we had in 1946. Um, and I think, you know, overall, there was a, a broad scale sense that people would be able to drive and that, you know, what equity meant was actually increasing access to cars and the ability to drive with all the new road construction. There was less of a sense of how quickly the roads would become gridlocked and also just how expensive it is to operate a vehicle. There's no shortage of opinions about the dysfunctional nature of the MTA. Why do you think they're viewed that way? And what can they do to change public perception? I think we have to talk about the ways in which the MTA, you know, does what it's supposed to do and the ways in which it doesn't. Um, you know, the MTA employs roughly 75,000 people in middle and upper class jobs. Um, that's a public service of its own. Um, it's a lot of people, right? And then it does it at a cost of $17 billion a year. The MTA also moves, you know, 5 million riders a day now, and it was 9 million, and it was always at least a million in the, the depths of the pandemic, when the MTA was losing hundreds of workers, when it actually kept half its workers home, just in case the ones on the job all got COVID and it needed a reserve army of, of workers. So the MTA, you know, is a 
is an essential service, right? It's, it's a basic public service like police and fire, like sanitation, like sewage that we simply cannot do without. Um, you know, the estimates are that, you know, if everyone drove into Manhattan, we'd need 84 midtown tunnels. If everyone wanted to park in Manhattan, we'd need a 30 story parking garage the size of Central Park. <laughs> like the city just doesn't work without public transit. And the MTA, to its credit, is the service. I mean, I, I hate to quote the, the late Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, but you know, every day we get on the subway or the bus with the MTA that we've got. And so there's a lot of frustration about the MTA, a lot of beating up the MTA, but it's the one that's running the subways and buses. So the question is, what do we do then? And, and I think the focus needs to be on delivering better service for the riders who are there today, which inevitably will track back other riders who aren't there right now, whether it's tourists or white collar workers or new residents in the city. Um, and that means the focus needs to be on what, what people come to transit for, which is frequent, reliable service. In his book, Subway, Johnny Morris writes, quote, the fundamental reason for New York's failure to expand its system is that no one in government has advanced a grand vision for the subway since the 1960s, end quote. And that was when Governor Nelson Rockefeller created the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, or MTA, to handle not only the subway, but various commuter rails and roads in and around the city. The idea was to insulate these services from politics, but as Governor Mario Cuomo later put it, it was also, quote, specifically designed to insulate the politicians from responsibility, end quote. So in recent years, subway users have watched helplessly as the MTA became a political hot potato, bounced back and forth between city government, typically dominated by Democrats, and the Republican-run state government in Albany. But former Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo and outgoing Mayor Bill de Blasio have proven, like Republicans Rockefeller and John Lindsay before them, that fighting over the subway can get plenty vicious without getting partisan. Each passes the buck and points the finger at the other. The subways are certainly safer and cleaner than they were in the Warriors, and more efficient than in the taking of Pelham 123. But 80 years of stasis have led New Yorkers to a bludgeoned sense of resignation, an inability to imagine public transportation in one of the world's largest cities as anything better than marginally functional. But it wasn't always so. At the dawn of the 20th century, progressive activists, forward-thinking politicians, ingenious engineers, and tireless workers came together to imagine a system that would markedly improve the quality of the city and the quality of life of its inhabitants. And the system doesn't work like that anymore. The ability of American government to think that big has been ground down by rich privateers who bleed funding from public infrastructure that they don't care about because they don't need it. And until that changes, if that ever changes, New Yorkers will continue to grapple with the tension between the subways of the movies, the subways of real life, and the subways of our dreams. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey.
Fun City Cinema is inspired by the book Fun City Cinema, New York and the Movies That Made It from Abrams Books, available wherever books are sold. Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey. And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Hole. Special thanks to today's guests. Nancy Gross is a folklorist, ethnomusicologist, and New York historian. She is a senior folklife specialist at the Library of Congress. Hunter Harris is a freelance writer and reporter. She writes the newsletter Hung Up on Substack. You can follow her on Twitter at Hunter Y. Harris and on Instagram at Hunter H. Walter Hill is a legendary screenwriter, filmmaker, and producer. His new film, a Western titled Dead for a Dollar, starring Christoph Waltz and Willem Dafoe, was announced this summer at the Cannes Film Festival. Denny Perlstein is Policy and Communications Director for the Writers Alliance, New York's grassroots subway and bus rider organization. You can follow them on Twitter at Writers Alliance, and you can follow him at Danny Perlstein. Alyssa Wilkinson is a film critic and senior culture reporter at Vox. Her book, Salty, Lessons on Eating, Drinking, and Living from Revolutionary Women, is out in May 2022. You can follow her on Twitter at Alyssa Marie and on Instagram at Alyssa Wilkinson. And additional special thanks to Consulieri Rebecca Dryden. Our website is www.funcitycinema.com. You can listen to episodes, read show notes, and order your copy of Jason's book. If you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at Fun City Cinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at BrainwashedLib and Jason is at Jason-Bailey. And if you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema. You'll also get early access to shows, additional writings, and bonus episodes, including the full Walter Hill interview from today's show. Or you can rate and review the podcast on your favorite app. It really helps. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening. million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. Gesundheit. <coughs> <coughs>